0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Well, you thought last week was a tough passage and you were looking forward to something kind of soft and nice and sweet this week you are going to be sorely disappointed, at least on the surface, because if you thought Jesus ripping apart the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and for the impurity of their hearts was tough, this passage is, if anything, even more severe, at least seemingly so. I don't know if any of you ever had one of those, they called them promise boxes, where every day you'd pull out a little card and it would have some encouraging little scripture verse to bless your day this verse has never found its way into any of those promise boxes because it's not something you can just read some, some sweet grace and love right off the surface. But I do believe that it is often the very tough and difficult texts of Scripture when we start to wrestle with them trusting in the Holy Spirit that God begins to reveal his grace to us in surprising and unexpected ways. And surely this, this pagan woman offers to us An inspiring and searching example of persevering, humble, and dogged faith. And let me set up the story for you. Jesus, as we heard last week, was arguing with the Pharisees, and he's receiving a lot of opposition. At the end of it, he decides, I'm going to get out of town, I'm leaving the region of Galilee, and I'm going off to the land of Tyre. So he's leaving, he's leaving the people of Israel, he's leaving the promised land, and he's taking a journey that would have lasted on foot at least a couple days to go far from Israel into the land of Phoenicia. And he doesn't seem to be on on a missions trip. He's not looking for people to share the gospel with, the good news of the kingdom. In fact, he's kind of hiding out. And there he is in his Airbnb or the guest house, wherever he's staying, and he doesn't want anyone to hear that he's in town. But guess what? The glory of Jesus shines too brightly for even him to hide, and the word, the word quickly spreads. And a few chapters ago, we heard about people from this region who had been coming down to Galilee to hear what all the fuss was about. And they've heard about healings, they've heard about deliverances, and they want to not only see for themselves, but experience for themselves the mighty power of God that is in Jesus. And these people most likely were were other Jews. But somehow, they go back to Phoenicia, and the the word starts to spread. And there is a woman in a desperate situation who somehow or another hears the rumors of this Jewish miracle worker who's hiding out in her city. And in our passage, in these few verses, she offers us, her faith offers us, I think, six, no, seven examples that we can learn from. Seven examples. The first one is this. Very simply, that faith falls at Jesus' feet. This story reminds us a little bit about Jairus. Remember him a couple chapters ago? He also came and fell at Jesus' feet because he also had a little daughter who was in desperate need of Jesus' healing power. And when you fall at someone's feet, you know that you are in a desperate situation, are you not? I don't know if any of you have ever been so needy and so desperate that you've literally flung yourself to the ground and groveled before someone and begged that they would do something for you. But this is the position that this woman takes up. Here Jesus, in our previous reading last week, is facing this delegation of religious quality assurance inspectors. They are certainly not on their knees before Jesus. They are standing there with their glasses halfway down their nose, peering at what he's doing and inspecting it with a spirit of criticism and judgment. But this woman is completely humble and completely desperate. Now, a little, it is a little odd in this story that there's no father in the picture. Because as a woman, she is definitely crossing some boundaries in the ancient world by coming to Jesus alone. There's no dad in the picture. And it could be, it's very possible that she was a widow and that he had died shortly after the birth of their daughter. But I can imagine as well that he may well have abandoned his family because having a young daughter who was possessed by a demon who had an impure spirit dwelling within her would be a pretty tough situation for anyone to handle. Regardless, there's no man in the picture and she is alone, just her and her daughter. And her daughter has this impure spirit. And the most dominating thing about this spirit is the filthiness of it. There's something disgusting and degrading and defiling about this evil spirit that is living within her precious little daughter. Can you imagine the agony of this mother having a little girl, no man in the picture, and her daughter has a demon living inside of her. What a horrible, horrible situation that this woman is living in. And she knows she's not a Jew. She knows nothing about the Bible as far as we know. But she recognizes there is a malevolent spiritual power that has somehow seized a hold of my daughter and is exercising a crushing and defiling dominion over her. She knew the power of evil by experience, and so she's in a desperate, desperate situation. In fact, she leaves her little girl at home in order to find Jesus. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we hear about a man who had a demon-possessed son, and the boy, the demon, kept on making the boy throw himself into the fire. You remember that story in John, I think it is? It would not be a safe thing to let your little girl at home by herself, especially if she had a demon. But this woman is driven to such desperation for some kind of healing, some kind of deliverance for her daughter, that she leaves her daughter at home, she locks the door, she goes down the stairs, and she rushes to the address that she has scribbled down on a little piece of paper, and she falls at Jesus' feet. That's the first one. Second point is this, that faith begs for Jesus' deliverance. She's heard these rumors about Jesus' astonishing authority over the power of evil. She has heard stories about Jesus casting out a legion of demons out of a guy who was living in the cemetery, cutting himself with stones and howling like a beast. And these rumors have spread far and wide from the region of Galilee, and they've reached this woman's ears somehow. Now, Tyre was a city that was stocked full of gods. And there were plenty of pagan powers that one could turn to seeking some kind of deliverance, some kind of control over the dark forces that directed your life. And surely this woman has gone from one idol to another, from one temple to another, praying to God after God after God after God, and nothing is happening to her daughter. And seemingly, all hope has been lost. The gods are clearly against her and her little girl. But there is one last reason for hope she has, which is this strange Jewish Jewish teacher who for some reason is showing up in town. And so she begs for, for deliverance for her daughter. She begs for some kind of rescue, some kind of spiritual power to release her daughter from the horrible bondage that she's in. Now, Mark tells us that she wasn't just begging, but that she was continually begging. And if you read the parallel account in Mark, in fact, this woman was persistently asking Jesus and nagging him so much that Jesus' disciples beg the rabbi, please, just, we can't handle this lady anymore. Could you please just send her away or heal her or do something? We're just so sick of her crying and crying and begging after you. Please, just get rid of her. She is persisting to the point of impudence and irritation, but she is fiercely bold because she's a mom. And what mother would not do this, seeing your poor little girl in such a horrifying situation? You know, when, it's, when we're asking something for ourselves, we can be kind of fearful and hesitant, but there is a sort of fierce boldness that comes upon us when we're interceding for someone else that we see and things we would not dare to ask for ourselves, we find we, we find we can ask for other people. Even a little bird like a robin is very fierce in defense of its nest, isn't it? And this woman is very fierce and bold and persevering as she goes to Jesus interceding for her daughter. But in the middle of this story, we have a very Very harsh word from Jesus. This is the verse that we're talking about in verse 27. When Jesus finally speaks to her, he says this, First, let the children eat all they want. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Wow. That is not what they teach you when they instruct you how to go and evangelize to people. Do not use the word dog. That should not even need to be said. But Jesus goes to this woman and speaks to her with some very hard and even rude words, doesn't he? But he's sort of um, giving her this little picture, this little parable. And it's fairly straightforward. The children are the people of Israel. And they have this relationship to God where he has given them promises, promises that go all the way back to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, Israel is my beloved son. And despite all the evil Israel might do, and as far as it might wander, the people of Israel always have a claim upon God. And they could remind the Lord, Lord, despite our sins and our exile and all these horrible things we have done, Lord, did you not say to Abraham, did you not say to Isaac, did you not say to Jacob, here are all these promises from the Old Testament, God, again and again you have sworn, and you have covenanted yourself to your people. And therefore, God, we do have a claim on you because you have promised to be the father of your people. And God, if you abandon your people, you are telling the nations that you are a God who does not keep his word. And so Israel always had the right in its darkest situations, in its most lost state, to appeal to God based on his promises. Israel has that right. They have this claim on God. The Gentiles do not. There's no promise given to them. The people of Israel are the ones, Jesus says, who will be fed first. That's a very important word in what Jesus says. Maybe the most important word, first. Because if you take that word out, it becomes unbelievably dark. But there's some hope in that word first because he's saying the people of Israel do not have a monopoly on God's grace. They have priority, but not monopoly. There is an order that God is doing things in, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, Abraham was chosen so that his descendants would be a blessing to the nations. And so God, God's special and very particular choice of this odd group of nomads in the desert was always for the sake of the entire world. But there's an order. First, the people of Israel must receive the good news that Jesus came to bring. And so Jesus came primarily and first of all for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He wept over Jerusalem, and he mourned over the hardness of heart of the people who had been so favored by God. And if Paul could have wished himself accursed for the sake of the people of Israel, Jesus is actually going to bear all the curse of their covenant-breaking. So Jesus cannot just lightly brush the Jews aside so he can go to more successful mission to the Gentiles. He came for the people of promise, first of all. It's not the Gentiles' turn yet. There is a wall of separation that Jesus is going to tear down at the cross, but that time has not come yet. And it would be wrong, Jesus says. It would be wrong for me, to rob the chosen people of their inheritance in order to give something to these Gentiles. And not just Gentiles, but Jesus calls them dogs. Ouch. These, take the children's bed and throw it to the dogs. And the Jews considered the Gentiles to be foul impure, disgusting, devoted to paganism and lies and darkness and the most disgusting sexual immorality. And they thought of them as dogs, like these mangy beasts that you see roaming the streets with half their tail missing. They're covered in fleas. They've got their face in a bag of garbage or in these days even chomping away on some corpse that had been tossed into the ditch. Their eyes are covered with some kind of Film, they've got stuff coming out of their nose, not the kind of beast you would want around your kids. And this is how the Jews thought about the Gentiles. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote about 30 years after this the people of Tyre, where Jesus went, we consider them our bitterest enemies. They're notoriously our bitterest enemies, he said. There was a long history of rivalry. An anger between the people of Israel and the people of Phoenicia in Tyre. This was a wealthy city, a trading city who had spread, the Phoenicians had spread all throughout the ancient world. Carthage, of course, was a Phoenician city that had almost destroyed the Roman Empire. And here is this city, this, this civilization built on trade and wealth. And it seems likely that there was some kind of economic exploitation going on as well, where the produce that the people in Galilee were growing, the fish that the disciples were harvesting from the Sea of Galilee, a great deal of that was going off to the great city of Tyre. And the people who lived in this region, these peasants, had to give away their best stuff to the big, wealthy city and feed their own children on what was left So it could be that very literally, the people of Galilee felt like the bread that belonged to their own children was being sent away to be fed to these pagan dogs, these people who had sacred prostitution in their temples, people who would sacrifice their own children in the fire in a national emergency. It was these people that are taking our stuff, the food that God has given to us, and we hate these guys. And so here Jesus gives this harsh blow to this woman seemingly. And how does she respond? Does she bristle in hurt and offense? The first word out of this woman's mouth is Lord. Faith submits to Jesus' lordship. She responds to him as Lord. Now what is remarkable is, that this Syrophoenician woman, this pagan with a demonized daughter, is the only person in Mark's gospel who calls Jesus Lord. Not after a warm and kind word, but after a cold and harsh one, she calls him Lord. This woman on her knees calls him Lord. And in that, is she not recognizing Jesus' supremacy to do as he pleases. She's not arguing with him. She's not getting into an angry discussion about what God owes the Gentiles versus the Jews. She's not disputing God's design for history, and she's not, she's not even asking that it be changed for herself. Well, Lord, couldn't you make an exception? Couldn't you just let me squeeze in just this once? She submits to Jesus completely as Lord, and there's no arguing at all, in what she says. And I feel like in her submission to Jesus' lordship, there is an implicit appeal in that, that Jesus is not a prisoner of his circumstances. Jesus, as the Lord, has the right to do what he wants to do. He's not bound by circumstances and eventualities. Jesus has the right to dispose as she wishes, and she appeals to his lordship as the beginning of some kind of hope. Not only that, number four, faith accepts Jesus' judgment. She doesn't dispute being called a dog. I mean, I would have, I would have argued that point. She does not dispute being called a dog by this Jewish man, and she does not debate Jesus' harsh words or try to get him to soften them. And you know what? Jesus does have some harsh words to say to us. Because Jesus is willing, he loves people enough to give them the honest truth about themselves. He's not trying to flatter us. He's not trying to butter us up. He's not trying to say nice things to win us over. He's willing to look us in the eye and tell us the brutal truth about ourselves that we will not even admit To ourselves, like we saw last week, hypocrites, impure hearts, murder, malice, evil, were called children of wrath, and were called slaves of sin, who are under the judgment of God. That's what Jesus says about all human beings in His Word. He says some pretty brutal things to us, but it's the truth, and all of our excuses before jesus are feeble and worthless because his holy eyes look to the very bottom of our hearts and he knows exactly what's going on there there was an article in the news this week about a woman in america who was caught by the police with a whole load of drugs on her and she said well I have no idea how this got in here. It must have been the wind that blew these drugs into my purse. I mean, we've all had that happen before. Like, oh, not again. Cocaine again? And that's what all of our excuses are going to look like before God on the day of judgment. And we rehearse them to ourselves, and they sound very convincing, as perhaps this excuse did for that woman. But before a holy God seated on the throne of judgment with all of our stuff spread before him, Every mouth is going to be stopped, and we will not be able to find a word in our own defense. And this woman certainly offers no word in her own defense. And you know what? Pride is not a luxury this woman can afford. She is in no position to negotiate with Jesus at all, is she? She's coming from a position of pure need and total desperation for her daughter, And so she swallows this harsh insult she gets from Jesus in order to persevere in faith. It's the only way we can win what we need from Jesus by adopting a position of total submission and humility before him. The American evangelist D.L. Moody said that Christ sent no one away empty, except those who were full of themselves. Jesus sent no one away empty except for those who were full of themselves. And the surest way to get God to resist our prayers and our longings is to start resisting his judgment and to start asserting our own rights and our own merits before him. This woman completely submits to Jesus' judgment. And fifthly, this woman in faith She argues from Jesus' word, not against Jesus' word, from Jesus' word. She accepts the premise of his little parable, and she argues from it. In fact, she seems like the only woman in this gospel who seems to grasp any of Jesus' parables. Here are these disciples who have been walking with Jesus for weeks and months, if not years by this point, and everything he says seems to go over their heads. But this pagan woman immediately knows what Jesus is talking about, and she argues from within the parable. And she seizes on the last word that Jesus says, which most translations have is the word dogs. The harshest word in this response of Jesus is in fact the one she grabs a hold of because... The word Jesus uses is the diminutive, not some mongrel out on the street, a dog, but a little dog, a doggy, a puppy. Oh, okay, well, if I'm a doggie, I can, I can argue based on that, Jesus. See, Jesus actually leaves the door open just a little bit for her. He offers her just a little foothold for her faith, and her eyes, which are fixed on him, immediately seize forth, on, seize onto that hope that Jesus is offering her. Okay, if I'm not allowed to be at the table, at least I can be under the table, just like one of the little doggies, the little pets that's sitting there at the children's feet under the table with their eyes looking upwards, waiting for some manna from heaven to fall into their open mouths." You see, if you're a little doggy, you are a sort of part of the family. You're not a child, you don't have the rights of a child, but you are allowed in the house, and you are allowed to be under the table. I mean, you're not allowed to put your front paws up on the table and start wolfing food down from the children's plates. And I have some regrettable experience on this score, because we have a Labrador, Derby, and Labradors are basically stomachs with fur. They love food, and they live for food, and their life centers around food. And I had a very traumatizing experience once a year ago where I had cooked up a whole plate of bacon. And I left the kitchen, and I came back. The bacon was gone, people. And you are looking at a man who is one plate short of bacon for the rest of his life. And that's not an experience that leaves one easily. And this horrible dog had just wolfed down my bacon, that is wrong. I was angry at Derby for doing that, and there's still some unforgiveness in my heart, obviously. But you know what? If we scrape some food off a plate into her bowl, or if she grabs a crust of bread or some crumbs that fall into the ground, no one's going to be angry at the dog for doing that. In fact, she's doing us a favor, isn't she? She's cleaned up the floor for us, and we have this you know, living vacuum cleaner that helps us out. This woman accepts... And seizes on to the fact that Jesus calls her a little doggy. Because if she's a doggy, okay, there's hope for me. There's some kind of blessing there for me. The commentator David Garland says You know, here are these disciples who have trouble receiving the kingdom as a little child, but this woman is willing to receive the kingdom as a little doggy, the very lowest possible position. Someone once said that prayer is retorting God's promises back to him. Retorting God's promises back to him. Just like this woman seizes on Jesus' word of doggy and and argues on the basis of that. She's like one of these rock climbers. You know, these people that climb up mountains, and you would look at what seems to be a sheer cliff, but their eyes perceive, ah, there's a tiny little foothold there, and a crack just big enough for me to jam my fingers into, and I can make my way up this cliff. And this is exactly what this woman is doing. With the tiniest, if you can even call it encouragement, in her faith and desperation, she seizes hold of that and makes the most of it. And man, that is an encouragement and a bit of a rebuke to our own prayer life, is it not that if she could pursue Jesus based on the slenderest of words, why are we not laying hold of the mighty promises of God that are lying by, unused, and unclaimed? So she argues from Jesus' word, and she in her faith appeals to Jesus' bounty. She needs a massive deliverance for her daughter, doesn't she? Her daughter is enslaved to the powers of evil, and all these gods and all these idols that she had worshipped and looked up to have done nothing for her. And she can do nothing to help herself. But what she needs from Jesus, she describes as just a little crumb. I mean, it's not a crumb to her. She desperately needs this. But to Jesus, Jesus, what is this to you? You To free my daughter from this demon would be nothing to you. Just like a crumb falling off the table onto the ground, it would not even be missed. And the blessing that she needs from Jesus is not going to deplete him in any way. See, if you are poor family, you can't afford any crumbs falling on the table to the little dogs. You can't afford even to have a doggy in the house. And when things are tough, like they were here in the 90s, the first thing you do is you get rid of your household pets so that your own children are not going to suffer. But Jesus' table is not like that. God's feast is not like that. God doesn't mind if crumbs fall off of his table, even pieces of bread or meatballs rolling onto the ground. There's so much bounty at the table of God, that when he feeds his people, there are basketfuls and basketfuls left over. That is the bounty of God. And so this woman appeals not to her own merits, her own deservings. She appeals to the generosity and grace of Jesus. And I wonder if her own prayers would not be much more effective if we were praying the same way as this woman does to Jesus. Not wasting any time arguing on what we deserve from God or what he owes us, but purely on the free and generous grace of Jesus Christ. That is the way to power in prayer. Here's what R.A. Torrey says. We must give up any thought that we have any claims upon God. No claims upon God, people. But Jesus Christ has great claims on God, and we should go to God in our prayers not on the ground of any goodness in ourselves, but on the ground of Jesus Christ's claims. Jesus is the son in the household, the oldest son who oversees everything that God provides. I have no claims on my own. In fact only an expectation of judgment and even harsher words than this woman received. But Jesus Christ has great claims upon God, and he does have the right to receive from the Father what he asks for. And so if we belong to Jesus, we have tremendous leverage in prayer. We have incredible power before the face of God, not praying in our own name, but always in the name of Jesus Christ. Our Savior. See, our faith honors God because faith is nothing else but the open hand. This hand is empty, but it's open. And we honor God when we say to God, Lord, I have nothing in myself to claim upon you, but fill me. So that when the blessing does come, the glory and the honor. Go to God and not to us. And that is how we argue from the greatness and goodness and glory of God, which is also going to be something that pours onto our lives, that the crumbs of God's grace shower down from the table onto us. And finally, seventhly, of course, faith wins Jesus' blessing. It would be a sad little story if it ended here, but it wins Jesus' blessing. Because faith is irresistible to Christ. He loves faith. He loves people who trust him. He loves people who freely admit they have no claim and no rights, and all they can do is rely totally on his goodness and his power. It's irresistible to Jesus. And he's never going to cast anyone away, even a pagan Syrophoenician woman, if they come to him in faith. And he says, for such a reply, your request is granted. Go home. Your daughter's already been delivered. Somehow, in between her saying and Jesus answering, he immediately and instantaneously cast the demon out from her daughter without even being present in the room. Cast out without an effort, just a crumb to Jesus' power and generosity. I love it because this woman goes home, and she finds her child, her little daughter, lying on the bed. But the word that Mark uses is tossed. This girl's been tossed on the bed. It's almost a little play on words that Mark is using, okay? Maybe Jesus does take some bread and toss it to the dog's in his generosity, and she goes home and she finds her child delivered and rescued and freed from the evil one through Jesus Christ. Well, the day is coming in Mark when Jesus will break down that wall of separation, and Jew first, but also the Gentile, are welcomed in not as dogs under the table anymore, not even doggies, but children with the full rights of sonship. We do not have to sit under the table waiting for a crumb to fall. God has invited us through Jesus to sit at the feast. Despite our sins, despite our total lack of merit, we are welcomed as God's children. Sit down at the feast and enjoy everything. Help yourself. And if this pagan woman could show such confidence, such faith, such persevering boldness before God, Are we not provoked this afternoon to show as equal or even greater confidence before our covenant, faithful, promise-giving, and promise-keeping God? We no longer have to squeeze through a crack in the door like this woman did. The gates of the kingdom have been flung open, and we are welcome to come with boldness and confidence. We don't have to wait for a little crust or some food on the floor. We are welcome at the feast of God as children. This text is not just a personal one for us in our own faith. There is also a deep missional aspect to these verses, aren't they? Because the blessing to the Gentiles and the blessing to the world was meant to come through Israel. The dogs are fed through the children. That's always how it should have been. The people of Israel were meant to be bearers of the light and bringers of the feast to the Gentiles. And the same is true today. God wants us to be messy eaters of grace. Are there crumbs falling from your table? Is there food falling off your plate for those around you? Or is it just a white, bone-dry, completely clean and barren plate that you're offering those around you. I'm sure if dogs could cross-stitch over little, their little dog houses, they would write, God bless all the messy children. And God wants us to be messy children. You know what I mean? With crumbs spraying off us, grace coming off us for those around us who are receiving some kind of blessing, some kind of sustenance for us, so that they too can be invited in as God's children and sit with us around the table. We have a big table in our dining room, and it has leaves that get extended so we can make the table even bigger. And God wants his table to become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So it's not just we few in this room, we few who are already in the kingdom enjoying God's grace that the whole world, that men and women and boys and girls from every nation on earth would be enjoying the bounty of God in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing about. So shall we bow our heads and pray and thank God for his undeserved grace? Let's do that. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.